Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders, technology leaders in higher education, and most importantly, students. To chat on hot topics, share solutions, collaborate, and envision the future of higher education together. Let's illuminate higher education once and for all. Hello, everyone. We have an exciting guest for you today. We have David Blake, founder and CEO of Degreed, and also co-founder of Learning. And from my recent understanding of his profile, he's also founded a company called Book Club a few years ago. So David is an incredible entrepreneur, committed his life to not only education, but also lifelong learning, which I'm extremely passionate about. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And just for clarity, I'm founder and now executive chairman of Degreed. We are served by CEO Chris McCarthy uh, exceptionally well, and I certainly want to, want to take credit for uh, for the job he's doing at the moment. He's uh, all, all credit belongs to him. He's doing a great job with it. Great. Well, I mean, you have a life of embodiment of experience and you're still early in your career. Um, I, you know, I've been an ed tech entrepreneur myself and I have many scars to prove that ed tech and entrepreneurship generally don't go very well because there's a lot of uh, issues with selling education technologies or education related products to whether it is universities, students or customers but it does look like you made it a passion for yourself. I want to hear some of your background on what made you commit yourself to this journey and uh, how this journey journey has progressed, even ups and downs, if you will. Yeah, I tell people I'm an education reformer by choice and I'm an entrepreneur by necessity. And, you know, especially when I started into this work, you know, ed tech was not a category. If you were just sort of optimizing for, you know, what industry or vertical would be the, the best route or the sort of optimal route as an entrepreneur, um, certainly wouldn't pick ed tech, you know, but I do think that's changing. You know, for me, it's it's really, it's not about trying to build the biggest business or, or maximize revenue. It's about trying to change the way we learn and, and you know, affect the, the systems and the health of the systems of uh, the future of learning and work. And for me, it all really started um, as I came through high school, I was a top performing student in my, in my high school and, um, had perfect marks and just dedicated myself really to to that pursuit and was working really hard to achieve my personal goals of getting into you know sort of the best college I could and when I finally came time for me I sat for the ACT in my case and I knew full well its importance in the process so I had studied hard for it and I ended up scoring well for it but the experience of sitting for it just kind of blew me away you know I, it's like 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning I went drove to not even my high school, sort of one of the, the other local high schools. And we're in the gymnasium with like, I don't know, 200 kind of kids and, and rows of desks. And, and I just looked around and thought, this is crazy. You know, this kind of three hours on a Saturday morning, we're all 17. This is half of the equation for who will get into university and what university. And that's half of the equation for, you know, what jobs everyone here is going to have uh, available to them. And, you know, it just felt crazy. No one, you know, in our high school, no one prepares you for the ACT. You know, it's no, it's not your English teacher's responsibility. It's not your math teacher's responsibility. They're preparing you for, you know, state tests or AP tests, or, you know, they're not preparing you for the ACT or the SAT. And it just felt like, you know, unfair 
um, and just quixotic that, that this was how we did it. And so that experience, you know, really stuck with me and, and I'd actually go on to try and, you know, learn more about high stakes testing and where did it come from and why did we do things the way we did and, and sort of the epiphany that would end up cementing my passion and, and commitment to lifelong learning was, you know, this slow and dawning realization that the questions I'd been asking about the ACT and the books I had read were really the first thing I'd, I'd really studied that right. a teacher had not assigned to me. And I had this epiphany that while I was graduating at the top of my class, I was graduating a great student, but a terrible learner. And I had made it all the way through my secondary education and had failed to become a good learner. And, you know, so I committed to myself that I wanted to become a great lifelong learner, even if that meant giving up being a, a great student. Well, that's, that's interesting story in many different levels, right? I think, uh, you you encapsulate this concept of difference between studying and educating and learning, which is a very big difference because mm-hmm. a you can stop studying, but you can continue learning. In fact, you'll all you're always learning until your last breath, right? Um, but we don't. Yeah, uh, at least definitely you're right. Um, I actually joke with my employees. I have a small company, and I say um, my one of my running quotes is, "When you stop growing and when you stop learning, you start dying." Simple, because you start, you know, eating off of whatever knowledge you gained, and also, you know, essentially cannibalizing yourself, right, in that process. So learning is very important for growth, but in a lot of ways, I think educational institutions really don't, um, I think they don't have the time to focus on individual learning. And there's that's, I think, going to be the biggest part of our conversation. Um, for example, when you, when you take a step back, just like you did, on why standardized tests are important, right? Um, so let's just say we're all cows, and there's a cow farm out there that wants to start seeing whether we are all we are all cows and we are ready for you know uh, generating producing milk um, you know if you're a vegan I probably um, apologize for this analogy but I'll just use that for now um, so then there is a intermediary testing state saying okay I want to test each cow to see if they're generating enough milk and then I'll send them to this uh, milk producing factory it's you know, it sounds really arcane and weird, but that's how we are treating humans because we are not really looking at what is the individual's um, attention span, what is each individual's ability to learn, what is each individual's competency and skill level. We're just basically saying, I want to make sure that I send them to the standardized test and whoever comes out in this range is ready for the next quarter. So, you know, like you described, just because you got a 34 out of 36 on ACT, doesn't mean that you have the right skills to become a good lawyer. It has no bearing whatsoever, frankly. It's just a very simple test. But I think they're using the standardized test as a laziness factor, I believe, right? Saying, well, we can't test them on everything. We're just going to test on this English, math, and I don't know, some analytical skills and get them to the next stage. So do you think the laziness is what drives these type of very raw analytics uh, for educational institutions? Or is there some other factor that comes along with it? Is it an efficiency, if you will, and if you want to spin it positively? Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that stood out to me in my journey, and this would come later, the, sometime in my early 20s, I read the work of Michael Spence, the economist who won a Nobel Prize for his work. And 
you know, the punchline, the, the work that won him the Nobel Prize was um, higher education works as long as it's expensive and uh, it doesn't even require that you learn anything. Right. You know, Absolutely. and sort of the, the punchline of that was it's all a fil- it's a, a filter system. And the filter works as long as it's expensive and expensive, meaning in the economic term, you know, whether it's hard, whether it's long, whether it's, you know, um, actually costs a lot of money. Um, Because as long as it is expensive, those who are good at sort of um, the optimization of uh, sort of their time, their, their economics, their, their money, you know, the people who are better at self-optimizing get through the filter and those who don't, um, don't. And so it serves as this filter that then passes through people who are good at sort of optimizing for, for expensive or difficult things. Um, you know, so is it a, a laziness filter? You know, yes, possibly, you know, more than we'd like to admit, you know, and, and that always stuck with me. I mean, I do think, you know, our systems of education were built in a, in an era of standardization and, you know, it's, it's our, um, primary education model is built on the Prussian model that, you know, merged right as the world was industrializing and standardizing. And, you know, it was, it was made to prepare, you know, the citizenry for jobs, you know, at the manufacturing line. And, and I think we appreciate and know a lot of that, you know, when I look at our system of education today, I I still don't think we've really gotten past it. I mean, I think we're doing some things better than we have been. Project-based learning is, is beginning to become more normal and commonplace inside schools, you know, but um, for the most part, we still cohort, um, you know, and, and move people along the sort of conveyor belt, you know, yeah. no matter what their, their mastery or competency of any given topic, you know, we, we tend to personalize very little, like, you know, we, we are getting better at personalizing individual um, uh, tests you know, you can, you can route someone through a test differently, um, depending on how they answered one question or not, but we don't tend to do a great job of personalizing the overall journey or experience based on, on students, you know, individual interests or aptitudes or, um, you know, so we still have a long ways to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, there's many parts of this I want to drill down in, but I think I want to focus on filter, because I think that is where that's the right um, issue that that will lead us to this concept of where education is truly uh, falling off the rails, right? You're absolutely correct. Um, we have put in filters as a way to say, let's, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, let's move better students from one part of the conveyor belt to the other. Whether they are truly better or not is obviously uh, completely you know, up for discretion, right? So essentially, because we know that the filter itself is faulty because it's only analyzing very raw quantitative analytics, not really qualitative uh, strengths of each student. But the real problem is, if you look at how the filter is moving forward, um, the high school to college pipeline, right? For every 100 kids that uh, finish high school, we are probably looking at less than 60 of them moving to college. But every 100 students that move to college, less than 30 of them graduate. So essentially, in taking that very raw statistic into consideration, for every 100 students that um, have finished college, right, have finished high school, we are only graduating about 25 of them. 
So the real cost of this filter is not how many people are coming out of the filter. Let's keep that aside, right? The real real cost of this filter is 75 out of 100 students are now forever disadvantaged because they can't, you know, a, they are forced to go to work stream. And when they go to work stream, they are forced to not be able to learn so that they can take, get back into the equity, social equity and social justice that we talked about. So I think the real cost of this filter is not just about, not, not just about the 25 students that actually graduate college, but the 75 students that are forever disadvantaged. And that's where your technologies like Degreed come in, where lifelong learning is the only way for the 75 students to get back to some sort of common platform like the students that have completed their graduation. Did I encapsulate correctly on the lifelong learning problem? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, those stats I don't have offhand anymore. I mean, I actually used to keep most of those stats in my head, but I haven't checked in a while. Um, but in any case, you know, the framing of it is, is effectively um, placement and college completion as sort of the, the, the engagement of, of success. And I think increasingly, you know, just that's not the framework you know, not going to college shouldn't be a presumptive sort of mark of, of disadvantage. I'm, I'm uh, keenly aware of sort of the, the economic advantages of, of degree holders, and yet it's shifting. And I think, you know, the New York Times uh, published a piece um, recently on the work regarding STARS. I think it's Jobs for the Future or Opportunity at Work, excuse me. I think it's Opportunity at Work who um, published this uh, research that said it's it's like 70 million Americans, 30 million Americans would be eligible for a 70% raise or the inverse, I forget now which, if it's 70 million Americans would be eligible for a 30% raise. If companies would remove degree requirements and evaluate candidates on, on skill. And so like we have this massive, you know, un sort of um, uncaptured value and potential in the system because we continue to persist on evaluating everyone based on college degree requirements, when if we could see past that, we would you know, see that there is a pool of skill and talent um, and people able of doing higher order work and jobs that creates more value. And you know, they should be able to participate in some of that value and you know, earning higher wages, but we don't. And so it's just, you know, it's just un- it's just untapped potential can simply because of the sort of, you know, worldview or the lens by which we evaluate, um, you know, talent in, in the American economy. And, and it's a shame. Right. I agree. I think, I think this is where we are, you and I are almost hundred percent in alignment on the real problem with education. Yes. The filter is a problem, but also you're absolutely correct. Just saying that the person has finished a bachelor in business administration, and somehow this student is better than another person that has finished their high school and ran a business for 10 years um, is complete fallacy, right? Uh, it's obviously bogus, but if these two people apply for a job, um, there is an issue if an, if an issue, if an employer is purely looking at transcript, the guy that has 10 years of experience uh, but only finished high school is considered lower. So I think there's a social equity issue that we need to um, we need to consider. But the real problem is we, as lifelong learners, we don't get credit for our lifelong learning, 
right? So what I mean by that is, you know, for example, let me take my own example. I finished my firm, my, I'm a bachelor in pharmacy. And after that, I came to US to do my MS in medicinal chemistry. So in that process, I got into, um, got a grad assistantship at University Technology Center. And then I got enamored by university IT systems. And the last 22 years, all I've been doing is working for universities and colleges and started my two businesses, my first business I exited, um, and then this is my second business. And uh, if some, if I go to anybody and show my transcript, they'll say, okay, you're a medicinal chemist, chemist, right? But, you know, I can't draw a formula to save my life. The probably the only formula I can draw is benzene. Um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but I'm, in theory, I can actually, I should actually be an MBA, right? Because of having 20 years of uh, entrepreneurial experience, lifelong experience, but here's the rub. I don't get credit for it. Like I can't show this in a tangible fashion like a degree can. So I think this is where um, technologies like degree will be truly transformative because ideally we would like to create a platform for lifelong learners where they will submit their data and say, this is my you know, what I would call structured learning, right? Going to an educational institution or otherwise. And this is my unstructured learning. And I want to know what all of this means. I want to know uh, if I can, is this equivalent to a bachelor in business administration? Is it equivalent to an MBA or something else? So um, I would love to hear your thoughts on giving credit for lifelong learning. Sure. Yeah, you know, the, the problem isn't that people need signals. Like we need signals. That when I'm trying to hire you, we only in an interview, you only end up talking with someone for maybe a matter of a few hours, you know, and you're making a decision mutually that's, that's going right. to last for years and you know affects both parties in a in a very substantive way. Like we need good, clean, informative, um, high veracity signals. The problem is the only signal we've had is this college degree, and it, and it has all the ramifications of the relevancy and the, the equity of, 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 you know, who's able to participate. Yeah, so and, it's also, and it's also worthless. Who cares what I did 22 years ago? Yeah, right. So the relevancy <laughs> sort of, you know, and, and how well it ages, you know. You know, and so that's what Degreed set out to do. Degreed's mission is, we say, to jailbreak the college degree. And that's a, to harken back to the early days of our smartphones, you know, when the, the platforms um, were closed off and, and to really get much value out of the platform, you would have to unlock it or unbrick it or jailbreak it to be able to use, you know, other sort of apps outside of the closed um, app e ecosystem. So by jailbreaking the degree, we really mean not to do away with it per se, it holds a place in the world, but to open up the concept to outside sort of, um, you know, um, value. Uh, so jailbreaking the degree and what degree does is it allows people to track all of their informal learning, academic learning and professional um, training and skills and to have it all add up to um, a profile that helps you reflect back the skills that you have. We really do believe that skills are the currency of the future of work. You know, college degrees have been the de facto currency, but skills will and increasingly is the currency um, of work. And so, you know, we are hard at work trying to get people um, credit for, you know, um, the skills and the education that they have that they haven't been able to reflect back to an employer or to the market to this point. It's now millions of people on the platform. It's half of the world's largest companies um, use the platform. 
Uh, and we really do believe we're, we're well on our way to, you know, a, a future where people are able to get credit for everything they uh, have learned and all of their skills, irrespective of how or where uh, they learn them. Yeah, I think that is that is the foundation of the future of it, right? I think if I have to take an analogy or metaphor, um, think of college degree as a uh, as a currency, right? Uh, and then you guys are, and Bitcoin is a currency only as long as somebody accepts it, right? You know, we can we can give it as much value as you want, but Bitcoin is worthless unless you can use it to buy a burger at McDonald's or book a room in a hotel or obviously trade in the stock market. So it only gains relevancy when the employers accept, when the vendors accept it. It's the same thing with you guys in that we can create self-certified transcripts all day long, right? But it was only worth it if employers accept it as a valid alternative to a real degree. And I think that is where you guys are doing a phenomenal job enrolling the employers because mm -hmm. that is where we are going to change the discussion altogether. Because if you try to just focus on educational institutions or state and federal government regulators, there's a lot of resistance to this because when you go back to the economies of educational institutions, they don't get incentivized to give credit to for Math 101, three credit hours for Math 101, if a student shows that he's brilliant in math, right? Or he learned it by himself in Khan Academy. They're like, well, I still need this, I don't know, $900 from the student. Why should I give him credit, right? So they're mm -hmm. disincentivized for giving you credit for learning. But employers, on the other hand, are incentivized to give you credit for lifelong learning because they could care less how you learned it. All they care about is whether you actually have the skills or not. So I think that is where definitely, I think you guys are on the right track there in terms of degree and acting as a true vehicle for employers. Thank you all for tuning into another episode of Illuminate Higher Education. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Blake, the founder of Degreed and of Learn In. And make sure you stay tuned for part two of this episode. We had a really long conversation with David Blake, and so we're splitting this into two parts. Uh, so come back again later this week for part two. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education sponsored by end-to-end -end services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.